Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Good morning, North Sound Church. Good morning, North Sound Church. (laughs) It's good to be with you all this morning, worshiping with you as well. And those watching us online, thank you for joining us. Uh, It is great to be in the house of the Lord. Uh, I hope everyone's enjoying the warm summer weather, enjoying nature and everything that's beautiful out there. Um, Well, let's, as I say in the Bible, let's redeem the time (laughs) before the winter comes in. And I know Pastor Barry doesn't like winter so much. So let's make the most use of it. Um, uh, We are in the series, You Asked for It, and uh, You Asked for Creation. And the pastor rightly gave it to me. Uh, rightly, I say, because it's, it's a beautiful topic. It's a very complex, uh, magnificent, I, I don't know what more adjectives I can add, a very controversial topic. Nevertheless, God speaks and his word stands forever. And um, Pacific Northwest is really blessed to have this wonderful um, beauty and bounty of nature. I have traveled through 46 states with my wife and my children and the U-Haul behind us. And we have seen the terrain. And of all the states, I like Virginia, I like Tennessee, and I, a little bit of North Carolina, and I like uh, uh, Washington State. Maybe I'm more predisposed to colder and uh, green terrain. So, um, and as, as we were praying, I, my, my thoughts went back to you this, almost this time last year. My dad was with me. And uh, he was sick for some time, and he was losing uh, his orientation, time, and space, and personality. Um, uh, I remember taking him from Monroe all the way to Ellensburg, then to Rainier, and then all the way from I-5 back to Monroe. For the first time in three months, when we were trying to uh, minister to him and help him and treat him, when he was watching those to the window, I thought I saw him smile. I saw him crack a joke, which was, which was something I did not get to see in the last four months of his life. And um, August 25th, he went to be with the Lord. I understand the power of that, the beauty of nature that had, even when for him uh, things were going downhill. Uh, with that, I would like to turn to Psalm 8, the psalm that we read today, and share with you some thoughts that the Lord laid upon my heart, and um, how God speaks, and why God created this creation for us. So let's start in verse 1. Lord, our Lord, if you have your Bibles with you, it would be great. (laughs) Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Um, out of uh, the, the, the latest numbers that I found was 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. We can't even fathom that number. Uh, they have an, I, I, I didn't know we have a term called 200 sextillion. Uh, that's the dimension of the space in our, of stars and galaxies that we have in our universe. And, I, and it is my well-informed guess, an educated guess, that 
praise is arouse, arising from just one planet of this enormous universe, and that is the Earth, because there's a reason for that. Um, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, all the Earth. Every time we see the Mount Rainier or sit on the uh, shores of this beautiful coast, it stirs in us a sense of uh, awe, a sense of wonderment, a sense of um, there's something out there. For many claim that to be spirituality, uh, but we know that nature has a wonderful means of stirring this emotion in us, which draws us closer for a moment away from our everyday mundane trifle matters of our life. You look at that mountain, you look at that valley, you look at that sea, and for a moment you are transported to another world. That is the power of creation in our lives. And here is a king who sees this very beauty and the best words he could use was, Lord, Lord, how majestic is your name on all the earth. You have such a glory in the heavens. And thanks to God, he said it in the heavens so that people in Asia and Africa and America and Australia, all of us could just look up and gaze the stars and the constellation could see the sun and its sunrise and the sunshine, uh, sunset, could see the waxing and the waning of the moon, the blue sky, the majestic clouds, and um, thunder and lightning. And when they see that, it brings in them a sense of awe and wonderment. And they ask a question, why is it here? Who brought it here? Why is there anything at all? This is a very fundamental question. And if we live all our life, let's say you travel all over the world, watch the pyramids and the Berlin Wall and the Taj Mahal and everything, and you never probe this question, it's almost like going to a restaurant having ordered a three-course meal and you had your soup and you walked away. If you've never asked this question, why is this here? And who created this? Where am I in this whole grand scheme of things? David, as he writes, if you go to the next verse, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold. God Almighty, through the praise of children and infants, as they behold the nature, has established a stronghold against the enemies of God. That baffled me for a moment. How do I interpret it? How do I understand the text? We recently moved our residence from Edmonds to uh, a little up north, from Arlington to a beautiful town nestled between two wonderful mountains. Even at this uh, warm uh, summer, uh, the mountains on my right had snow on the top of it, and the mountains on my left was lush green and a beautiful place. And as my car came in, all my four children just ran out of the car, and they ran and they rolled in the dust and they touched the flowers and the fruits. They were just relishing every moment when they were in that nature. They could care less the legs are dirty. Now, for them, the flower, the dandelions, the rose, everything, they were absolutely enjoying and relishing the beautiful, beautiful nature. And in verbal or in nonverbal sense, they were actually praising nature and nature's God. And I and Joanne, Sitting on the bench, we are worried about bugs. We are worried about poison ivy. We are worried about uh, an ass. It's a rural area, so when the sun goes down, it's pitch black. Raccoons and bears and cougars. Uh, children in their absolute abandonment and fun and joy, they're able to take the most of nature. 
and somehow we adults miss the plot. I'll come back to the verse, the, who is this foe and the enemy that David is talking about? Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, David is saying, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, what is mankind? That you're mindful of them and human beings that you care for them. This is David's heartfelt cry. I can think of, my imagination goes back to David when he was a kid or his boy and he would tend his father's sheep alone sometime in pastures and meadows and gra in grasslands and I can think of sometimes when he's alone and he lies down on, on the grass and he looks up, it's night and he sees the starry sky and the moon and he might think to himself, I care for my sheep. It seems my family and my brothers don't even care for me. Lord, would you care for me? Do you really, are you mindful of me? I, I'm imagining these thoughts must have gone through David's head. Are you mindful of me? Do you care if I live, if I exist? And I believe in those lonely moments, David, as he looked at the stars in the constellation, experienced the presence of God. Yes, I am with you. Nature has this ability to mediate God's presence and God's power through the wonders that he has made. And as time went by, now David is a king. He has, has a big palace, bed and food and people, everybody to serve him, but he cannot sleep. He's a troubled man with a haunted conscience because he strayed away from the law of God and he committed sins like adultery and murder. And he stands, I'm imagining, he stands at the window and he looks at the starry sky, the pitch black sky and the shining stars. And David thinks, Lord, are you mindful of me still, me a sinner, of all that I have done? Yes, David, I'm mindful of you. And I will make you walk through the path of restitution and reconciliation. Uh, there could be other time when David almost felt, my family is breaking at the seams. Blood against blood, incest, rape, murder. He must have felt, I have failed as a father. I have failed as a leader because this internal rebellion in the country. And he must have felt, all hope is lost. I'm good for nothing. And you again come to his palace and he looks out of the window. Lord, are you still mindful of me? Will my family come to mean anything in the annals of history? And God, through the stars, speaks. Yes, David, I'm mindful of you. I will make sure that one of your offspring would be on the throne of Israel forever. David is assured again by the promises that God speaks to him through those moments as he sees, as he considers the heaven, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place. Uh, David, when he penned the psalm, I'm assuming it's almost 3,000 years ago, probably. It's a uh, 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 I, I'm, I'm very startled by the words, the moon and the stars that you have set in place. I mean, now we know after so many years and after 200, 300 years of uh, advances in technology and astrophysics and, um, that had the moon been a little closer to the earth, a little away from the earth, Edmonds would not be here. We would have had tidal and climatic events that no coastal area would be habitable. Had the moon as a star been any closer or any further, 
neither David would have written this psalm, nor we would be reading this psalm here. Life would not have been possible here on earth. He's mindful. And all of this begs a question, why the creation? Who and for whom? And we, we often miss out the question. When a child looks at the creation and he's all enamored and he's starry-eyed, the adults in the house, um, uh, sorry, I wanted to go back to the other point, but anyways, um, <laughs> God in his manifold wisdom created a house for us to be in. And then when it comes to the question, um, Psalm 8, the Psalm that we read, or even Genesis 1 when we read in the beginning God, these texts are not an evidence or a proof for God. These texts rather proclaim the power, the, the awesomeness, and the mighty works of God. It already pre-assumes that God exists and He has done a mighty work. He has made everything that we see, we feel, we enjoy today. What is that? So who is this God that we serve? He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-present. He is omnibenevolent. He stands outside of space and time and matter. And by his spoken word, he brought the creation and the universe and everything in it in existence. Hebrew 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. Psalms 33.6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Exodus 20.11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them, and he rested on the seventh day. The creation was a supernatural act of God. The supernatural act of God preceded the natural world and the laws of physics that then evolved from that creation, act of creation. So any attempt to explain this creation by natural laws and physics and other things is, um, is illogical first. Second, is impossible to, come as, to, 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 uh, to understand. The universe began as a supernatural act of God. Time, space, matter began at that moment as words came out of the mouth of God. Now, you would say, okay, well, that's scripture. Well, in 1916, Einstein, as he was working on his theory of relativity, um, the calculations and the conclusion that he was coming towards was, it seems the universe has a beginning. The existing consensus of the day, or the science of the day was, matter is eternal. Nature is all that is. This is a closed system. There is no place for God in this system. And Einstein, as he was proposing and working on his theory of relativity, he finds this equation is moving towards a conclusion that the universe had a beginning. And he resented that idea. He, 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 he's, he was so startled by that, that he intentionally introduced a mathematical error in his equation for two years. His contemporary uh, author, Eddington, in, in UK, he came to the, his independent conclusion, yes, the three of relativity is showing 
that the universe had a beginning. He too resented the idea. No, that's not possible. How can it be? We were all told the universe always existed. Thanks to a mathematician in Russia, Alexander Friedman, he called out Einstein's bluff. And he said, this, this is a mathematical error. It's not possible. And then finally, Edwin Hubble, uh, without any doubt, I think it was in uh, uh, 1922. I may get the dates wrong a little bit here and there. Um, without any doubt, once and for all showed the, um, that the red shift that was observed on every observable galaxy, it without any doubt proved the, uh, that uh, the universe had a beginning. Einstein reluctantly went to Mount Wilson in California and with his own eyes through the Hubble telescope saw that red shift and he had to change his conclusion. He had to conclude the universe had a beginning. Well, he had to go to Mount Wilson to get that, but 3,000 years ago, Moses on Mount Sinai had a revelation that the universe had a beginning. God created the universe at a point in the beginning. So it begs the question, if God is this omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good creator, why has he, what is the purpose of this creation? To whom is this creative work intended to and intended for? Let me introduce another doctrine of God, the aseity of God. God, this doctrine says God exists. He is all, he is self-existent and is self-sufficient. He does not depend on any secondary causes for his causation, for his actualization, or for his continuation. He is all sufficient in himself. He needs nothing. He doesn't need time, he doesn't need matter, he doesn't need space, let alone be people. He is in himself, of himself, for himself. This is the aseity of God. Why would such a God, in Genesis 1.26, say, let us make man in our image? What is the purpose of creation? And why create in our image? I, as I was thinking about it, I realized that relationships uh, or intimate fellowship is possible and meaningful only between creatures of like kind or uh, creatures of the same nature, man and women, or humans. Uh, I don't want to go in man and dog. <laughs> uh, that's a different kind of relationship. But any meaningful relationship needs the unity of nature, of kind, of, of essence to be meaningful. God is one of its kind. In, the, in this, there is no other. He is all that is. There is no other. How can he come into a relationship with a complementary other? Well, God is ingenious. He creates man in his own likeness and his own image. So um, in my reading of the scripture, I realized God created us with this Virtue. Humans are considered to be special creation because we were created with rationality, intelligence, ingenuity, creativity, cognition and memory, communicability with, and language, agency, free will, and moral discernment. These are the virtues, non-material virtues, that we possess 
as attributes delegated to us by God in his creation. Otherwise, we cannot enter into a relationship with God. It has, there has to be a similarity of essence. We are not same as the essence of God. Ontologically, we are different. But God himself delegates a likeness and his image so he can enter into an intimate relationship with us. Therefore, humans are a special creation. And all relationship, as we, all, we are in some form of the other relationships in our life, all relationships need to have three very important things. Radical freedom. The possibilities should not have limits if it's a relationship. Second, a relationship ought to have radical um, agency. I should have the ability to choose a possibility. Relationships should have um, the radical choice or to pursue with a particular choice. And God in his divine sovereignty endows and gives we limited creatures all these virtues of free, of freedom and of choice. This is where I disagree with my brothers on the reformed tradition. It is within the sovereignty of God that we were endowed by these gifts so that we can truly enter into a meaningful relationship with God. Otherwise, it would be like a deterministic thing. And to make, and to make Genesis 1.26 and to provide a home for what he was intending to do in Genesis 1.26, we can see the creation order all the way from Genesis 1 to 1.25. He brings forth creation he makes a home that's habitable, that is designed teleologically, cosmologically, so that we humans could thrive in them. And unlike some who believe that God once, like a watchmaker, wound us, wound the universe into existence, and then went away. No. What do we read in Genesis? In the cool of the evening, he came into the garden and spoke, Adam, where are you? This is a God who had no need to have come into relationship with us, yet he does. He creates a home for us in creation. And he is intimately interested in us to know how we, do, how we are doing. The only, and it is because of this reason we were created in a special way that we share the attributes of God. When we see nature, when we see the wonders and, and things of nature, we observe patterns, we observe design, we observe beauty, we observe complexity, we observe a sense of truth in it. And we are able to discern and come to some conclusion. You know what we are actually doing? trying to know, we are engaging in the process called scientia. We are engaging in the process called science. An intelligent, cre an ordered creation is required, an intelligent mind is required to do science, to make science possible. Randomness, chaos, irreproducibility, inconsistency, we cannot have science if these things are, uh, if these things are present. Our creator is an intentional, purposeful, personal creator. The nature we observe is designed, is beautiful, is wonderful. The mind that God has endowed us is able to discern these things and come to a conclusion that this is wonderful. Scientific observation, identification, experimentation, investigation, 
These are all domain of true and pure science, and it is possible because and God created it such, and God created our minds in a way that we could perceive and discern this creation. So can science, in its real sense, be in conflict with God? Can science be in real sense be in conflict with the scripture or with our faith? As a physician, I've engaged in something called as observable or experimental science. I don't, I'm not into the domain of uh, inquiry of origins of life or origins of universe. For me, I observe, we observe things. So in medical school, first thing that they do is they hand you a big book called the Anatomy of Human, uh, Atlas of Human Anatomy. You've got to know everything. The bone, every protrusion, every depression, every impression on the bone, every nerve and every artery and every muscle. And you try to write it down in Latin and in English. And then you go to the lab and they give you a radius and an ulna into your hand. I'm talking about the bones of the forearm. And you once again observe them. What you just saw in the atlas, you observe them on the bone. And when you do well, they take you to the next lab. Now you're looking at a cadaver, a dead body that has been saturated with formalin, and you try to locate all the arteries and veins. I never got nerves. It was so indistinguishable. The reason we do this is when a patient comes and show, shows me his hand, even without dissecting or incisioning his skin, I know what's underneath. We engage in operational science. So when there's a fracture, I know which way to turn. If there's a lump, I know what to do because we engage uh, in, in matters of operational science. And I asked some of my, my, my sister is a, a um, medical engineer. She's into uh, imaging devices and other things. And I've got brothers and cousins and others who are computer engineers, civil engineers, uh, doctor, uh, in the medical field. And we never, we, we engage in science that was observable, repeatable, uh, verifiable, and we never had a difficulty reconciling our faith with what we did. Science, in its true, in its purest form, is never in conflict with the scripture. Science arguments my understanding of the scripture. It will never alter my understanding of the scripture. In the Middle Ages, the, churches, the church in general was accused of geocentrism. For some reason, the church came in or assimilated or accepted the idea of the prevailing science of the day. That was the Ptolemaic science, Claudius Ptolemus, if I remember this name correct. And according to the science of the day, Earth is at the center of the universe. And I don't know, just to be irrelevant or inclusive or uh, palatable to the existing culture of the day, um, the church jumped in with them. And we found, and definitely found verses uh, that would uh, support that theory. Uh, it took some time when Copernicus and Galileo came and turned the apple cut upside down. And uh, the church had to correct its position. So what did we do? What did the where did the church go wrong? We caved in to an existing system of knowledge that was prevalent at that day. I have a feeling we are in a time that many theologians are caving in to 
the science that is existing today on many areas, questions of origin. I'm not talking about operational science, I'm talking about historical science. There's an immense pressure to cave, to reinterpret scripture in that light. Ptolemy was, Ptolemaic science was replaced by Copernican science. That was replaced by Newtonian science. Newton and his whole Newtonian science was replaced by Einsteinian science. Science has changed over the period of time. The word of God never will. The word by which he created the heavens and the earth. The New Testament says, heavens and earth will pass away, but my word will not. We are endowed with special abilities and attributes that we can see God's uh, creation and discern beauty and understand and engage in science. He not only gave us this, in Genesis 2, as we look, God gave us the fundamental um, building blocks of human progress and human civilization. Namely, he created humankind, as we read in the verse, he created, he created human, and he created them male and female. Unfortunately, with all the advances, even that's up for question today. Who is a man and who is a woman? Goodness, God already spoke. He created man. He created humankind as man and woman. Genesis 2 gives us uh, the institution of marriage, a heterosexual monogamous union of man and woman. Genesis 2 also speaks about the foundation institution of family that is required and indispensable for the progress of human civilization. Unfortunately, we live in a culture, even that is up for grabs. God's truth is non-negotiable, it is irrevocable. <clears throat> but you may say, funny pictures, well, you spoke a lot about all these things, but things aren't that rosy. An island just was devastated by fire. There's earthquakes happening. There's hurricanes and famines and, and um, man-made and uh, natural phenomena that is wrecking havoc on nature, on mankind and on people. What is this whole talk about nature and God's beauty in that? Let's go back to Genesis 3. How God created us, gave us a habitable home, this home called Earth. All his beauty and all his wonder. God gave us delegated, literally, divine attributes so that we could be like him and engage and be his stewards, be his representatives in this created world. But what did we do? We see in Genesis 3, the, the apple became too irresistible for Adam and Eve. God created them in his image and his likeness, but that was not enough. We engage in a pursuit to become like God. And that was a very disastrous one. Man's rebellion, man's high act of treason against his God, who in his, who in his benevolence, in his holiness, in his aseity, when he didn't require anything, granted us, indulged in us, blessed us, and we engage in such high act of treason that we try to usurp his authority, his position. The downward spiral not just took man with him, all of nature was subjected to force of disorder, decay, and death. And the ramifications we see even today.
man's attempt to become God had led all of us, all of creation, into damnation. So what? God, does God abandon us? No. In Genesis 3 again, he makes the provision. When creation was meant to be the absolute consummation of a relationship never seen before between God and human, it cannot get more consummate, more ultimate than that. We mess that up. Even that we mess up. But God still doesn't abandon us. He introduces salvation and redemption in that plan to making sure that we are not lost. Man attempts to become God. Here God condescends to become man in, the Jesus, of, in Jesus of Nazareth and teach in, in, in an attempt to teach us how to be good humans. What was the purpose of creation? Why did God create? In one word I could say it was love. It was relationship. God conceived of us. God loved us. God created us. He valued us. And he built this beautiful creation so that we might enjoy the creation. And most importantly, we, we might enjoy him and be with him forever. As we read in Genesis 1, God's, the earth was formless and void, and there was darkness. Some interpretations, it was a wasteland, nothing habitable. God speaks his creative word in such an environment and brings forth a beautiful creation. But in man's predicament, here, word becomes incarnate himself to relieve us or to transform the void, the darkness, the, that we brought on ourselves as, as humanity, trapped in sin. Some of us may be in some situation like that, a void that just doesn't seem to go away. A loneliness, a darkness that no matter what we do, just doesn't seem to go. A sense of loss, a sense of hopelessness. He's the God who speaks, who spoke then at the moment of creation. He's the God who still speaks. And he doesn't need billions of years. He has the power to make this change, to, to transform hearts, to transform minds, to heal relationship, to heal broken bodies, disordered physiologies. He's a God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you ask the question, God, are you mindful of me? Do you still care for me? Like how David asked? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. And if you draw closer to him, he promises that he would make you into a new. All those who are in Christ is a new creation. Thanks, Ali. <laughs> if you draw close to him, it is his promise that he would make us into a new creation. And not only that, in Romans 8, it talks about all of the non-human created world, the plants and the animals and the mountains, they are all waiting for the day when you and I and every other person finds a redemption in the Lord, when all the sons of God are redeemed in him. Because that day, even the non-human nature would be freed from the bondage of sin, decay, and death. What a tragedy. What a tragedy that we subdued or subjected the creation too. 
but by God's grace and by, we can turn that around. If you draw close to him, God is willing, God is more than able to, to turn our lives, to bring a new creation in our lives. The ultimate express purpose for creation was because he loved you and me. That stands then and that stands today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. No words can suffice to say how majestic is your love, how majestic is your power, how majestic is your patience, how majestic is your grace, that you're still mindful of we sinners here on earth, that you still come seeking us despite our weakness, despite our failures. We thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. Lord, I pray for everyone who's here today. If there's a void, if there's a darkness, if there's a emptiness, a wasteland, an experience of wilderness that anybody's going through, Lord, I pray that you would proclaim a creative word in their life. For those who are struggling with illness and sickness, Lord, I pray that you will send a word of healing in their lives too, I pray. We thank you, Lord, and we need you, and we give you all the glory and honor. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen.